Hey everyone, welcome to Behind the Tour, the podcast from American Christian Tours that goes behind the scenes of some of the most iconic sites, historic characters, and true stories in American history to discover how God has been at work since the very beginning. Well, this is Aaron Kronk, your host on Behind the Tour. Our desire and purpose is to provide insight for today and hope for the future as we look at history from a biblical worldview and uncover the hidden lessons of our past. Well, on today's episode, we head into the heart of Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, to visit a brand new memorial, the World War I Memorial. Well, I'm joined today by Jay Prophet, uh, the marketing coordinator for American Christian Tours. And Jay also gives tours. Uh, one of my favorite guys, he is a wealth of knowledge. Jay, welcome to the podcast again. Hey, thanks, Aaron. Um, I am glad to be back, and I can't believe that it's already November. Crazy, I know. Everything's changing, you know, outside. The leaves are changing. This morning I woke up, and my little fountain at home was all covered in ice. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's it's... Definitely fall going into winter. <laughs> Your fountain was covered in ice. Yeah, we have like a little garden fountain and it kind of had oh. frozen. So do you have time, any little time gnomes? to turn time to turn that off? Do you have any gnomes out there, Jay? No gnomes. No gnomes. No gnomes. All right. No. <laughs> I was going to ask you if they were frozen too, but well, Jay, hey, we we got a great great topic today. Um, World War One, the Great War, something that I think a lot of uh, unless you're a historian, a lot of people just don't really know much about. Right. It's, it's an era in history, in a U.S. history, that is really, really important within the context of our country, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it was a big change in our nation. I mean, first of all, we had just kind of come out of the whole Civil War and Reconstruction and stuff, and then, you know, plowed right into World War One. Let's do a quick segment behind the holiday. We have a, a federal holiday coming up here uh, that really directly relates to World War One. Jay, why don't you tell the audience what it used to be called and what this holiday is now? So when I was growing up, I would occasionally hear my grandparents in conversation talk about Armistice Day. I never really kind of knew what that was. One time I asked them and they they referred to it as it was a day that we remembered the veterans from World War I who had sacrificed for our country. I said, well, I thought that was what we did on Veterans Day. And they were like, now it's Veterans Day. They were from that era where they saw what I'm going to tell you about happen. Yeah, Jay, and I, I'm kind of the same way. And so why don't you yeah, tell our listeners uh, why the change? Actually, where did it come from? How was it born? And then why did it yeah. change in, in the 50s? World War One had been going on for a number of years. And finally, the war was ending. They were going to sign this armistice, which was the end of fighting. It was to take place on November 11th. It was going to be signed between the allies of World War One. Uh, which would be like France, uh, Great Britain, and America, and then with the Germans. It was supposed to take effect at 11 in the morning, so it would be the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. And so that was what was called armistice. 
It became Armistice Day that was celebrated every November 11th. And an armistice is basically a ceasefire right Yeah, absolutely. When they signed the armistice in 1918, there were over 2 million Americans over there that had been serving. President Wilson made the proclamation. Then uh, it became a, a national holiday. So then in 1954, World War II had ended. That was just a huge sacrifice of American life. So Congress amended the Act of 1938, and they changed the word armistice and made it veterans. So when that was all signed, November 11th became Veterans Day. It's a day to honor all American veterans, a celebration of their patriotism, their love of country, and their willingness to serve and sacrifice for the common. Good. Well, and I'll bet you a lot of our listeners uh, probably didn't realize that that our, our federal holiday, Veterans Day, had come out of uh, the World War I era uh, and essentially out of Armistice uh, Day. Why don't we move into our next segment? Let's create a little bit of context for World War One, and then we'll talk about the memorial a little bit. In the summer of 1914, uh, there was a significant event that happened, the assassination of a man named Archduke Ferdinand, and he was heir to the Austria-Hungarian Empire. And this assassination ignited a continental war between the central powers, who were Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire. And then the people that came against them were the allies and the allies of France, Great Britain, Russia, in Italy, and eventually we would get involved uh, in three years into the, the war. But Jay, the, the war would span the globe uh, and claim more than 16 million lives, and it would also change the world forever. Well, it's interesting to me because Germany planned to really quickly defeat the British and the French uh, to the west before turning, if you can kind of picture this on a map, turning its full force uh, east to Russia. Uh, but its uh, initial thrusts into Belgium and northern France were, were kind of stopped. And by the end of 1914, there was 400 miles of trench lines that were dug. It was called the Western Front. Uh, and that's uh, it's kind of a big theme. Anybody that has done a little bit of reading about World War I, all's quiet on the Western Front. Uh, that's mm-hmm. one of those yeah. quotes. Well, this Western Front stretched from Switzerland really to the North Sea, and it was a stalemate. Over the next like three years, a series of really bloody offensives failed on both sides to, to move the markers. And uh, this trench warfare was just crazy. It just it kind of stopped everything. Yeah. Well, you know, just stopping you for a minute on that, too, yeah. um, we've We've talked before about this, but like when they were fighting that trench warfare, that was an old style of fighting that had taken place, you know, over the last century or so where they they'd come to a big field and one side would be on one side and one on the other. And they'd they'd start digging all these trenches that they'd be in. And uh, then they'd run up over the top and try to run across the field and take more land. That worked back in the older days when the weapons weren't that developed. Yep. Now we were doing this and they had developed all these new weapons. So you have like tanks and machine guns. You had all these poisonous gases that they were launching into these trenches. And the death toll was just like really... Uh, quite high compared to a lot of wars prior to that. Yeah. Well, in the United States initially remained neutral, 
but uh, there were a lot of atrocities um, from the Germans, like submarine attacks on shipping that were bound for Britain and France, and even a passenger ship, probably a, a really famous one that was sunk by a German submarine. It was the Lusitania, which killed 128 Americans. And especially that event uh, really started changing American opinion. That was in 1915. It's interesting because in 1916, President uh, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, won re-election on the slogan that he kept us out of the war. (laughs) Right. Uh, So uh, kind of interesting because now he's faced with a a pretty big decision. You know, American entry uh, was, was kind of imminent. And I don't think it came anytime too soon because the British were running out of men and Mm -hmm. almost half of the French army had mutinied at that point. And the Russian revolution had also uh, started in 1917. It would lead to their withdrawal really from the war. This war is super interesting, Jay, to to think about, you know, what kind of ended uh, the war was America's involvement. And Mm -hmm. It, it changed uh, dramatically when we sent uh, troops over under General John J. Pershing. That was called the American Expeditionary Force. Pershing was a pretty phenomenal man, and we're going to talk a little bit about him. But uh, just a phenomenal leader, came out of West Point, and he wanted the Americans to fight basically together and not be delegated uh, a lot of different places. Under right, the- to the other, the other nation's troops. Right. Because they wanted to divide them all up. And he's like, no, we're going to keep the Americans together. Maybe we can fast forward a little bit because we could talk about this, that really the war forever. But it's uh, on, on September 26th of uh, 1918, American forces landed at a place called uh, the Meuse-Argonne. And that's another kind of big term in World War One is the Argonne Offensive. And it was the la- largest battle in American history. And it was over 47 days. Uh, we had 1.2 million American troops there. And we drove back the Germans about 40 miles. Um, the, during that offensive, more than 26,000 American soldiers died. So that, that was huge. Uh, and that led to Germany's surrender and Jay, you had mentioned that, you know, because of Armistice Day, that was what created uh, the armistice. Yeah. And so I think we've read in total now some of the some of these were didn't weren't killed directly by the war. Maybe they got, you know, an injury that led into an infection kind of thing. Right. But what were the the numbers of Americans that were killed? Well, the the number of Americans that were killed uh, during this period of time that we were involved in this year was 53,400. And then there was another close to 64,000 that would die from uh, disease and accidents, kind of like the Civil War. You know, people would get shot or, you know, the gas played a, you know, the the chemical warfare, the gas played a a big role in that, too. Um, So total, uh, there was close to 116,000 that would uh, perish from World War One. And that's actually more than we lost in both uh, the Korean and the Vietnam Wars. It is. Let's uh, move into our next segment, the, the World War I Memorial. Why the World War I Memorial? When you look at it, of the four major wars of the 20th century, in Washington, D.C., they have memorials to 
the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and then they did the World War II memorial. Right. And so a lot of people were like, we actually lost a lot of soldiers in World War One, and there's not an official national World War One memorial in the city of Washington, D.C. So they were looking for um, maybe like a possibility of where to build a memorial. And right away, a site popped up in people's minds because there was a World War I memorial to the residents of the District of Columbia. Just to remind our listeners, most of you know this, but the District of Columbia is not part of a state. You know, it was land that was ceded uh, by Virginia and Maryland to create this federal district. And there were people from the District of Columbia, about 500 people, that had died in World War One, and so the district built this little memorial. Kind of looks like a, a dome with a little colonnade under it. People started looking at like that. Hey, that could be the National World War One Memorial. But people from the district were like, wait a minute, that's a memorial for the district, and they didn't want um, that to happen. Some people thought we should build it on the mall, but prior to that, in two thousand three. Uh, there had been a new law passed that we weren't going to build any new memorials on the National Mall itself. Yeah, Jay, and they were uh, looking for a place uh, to put the memorial. They came to the decision to place it at Pershing Park, which is very close actually to the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue. A statue of General John J. Pershing was already there. Am I correct in saying that? Yep. There, it was an existing park. They looked at it and they're like, we could take this park and convert it into the National World War I Memorial. Right. So, uh, and again, one of the central figures of uh, World War I for, uh, for American side anyway was, was General John J. Pershing. So I think it was a perfect fit. And I think maybe that's kind of what led them to put the memorial there. And that's a great lead in, Jay, to maybe talking a little bit about who John uh, Pershing was and uh, his role during World War I, but also kind of his, maybe a little bit of his uh, history. So a little bit about General John J. Pershing, uh, a very, it's, he's an amazing guy, uh, Jay, and he, he reminds me a lot of Dwight D. Eisenhower because he was a, a guy that grew up on a, on a farm in Missouri. Uh, you know, Eisenhower grew up kind of on a, in a really small town in uh, Abilene, Kansas, and uh, both of these guys would go to, uh, they would get out of their hometowns at a young age and uh, join the military. They would both go to West Point. Well, John Pershing was the son of a farmer and a store owner. And he had one thing that strikes me is interesting about Pershing's childhood. He was a teacher of local African-American children. And he, again, growing up in Missouri, you know, during that era, you know, post-Civil War, uh, there, I'm sure there was a lot of angst within the context of segregation and this and that. But I, th- I don't know. I think God put it in his heart to teach and to be a part of uh, this community. He would graduate with a bachelor's degree, but two years later, he would join uh, the military academy. And he, I think he was about 22 years old at that point. So, uh, Jay, what's, uh, what about some of the rest of his life after 22 after he, so he would go to West Point Military Academy, four years, he would graduate. So after West Point, he actually was sent out to the West. 
and was involved in um, fighting Indians, which, you know, is controversial to many people. But And being in the military, Jay, you know, there were Indian, at that time, Indian uprisings, they called them, and the military right. was called in to kind of help suppress those. Right. I know he was not involved with the massacre at Wounded right. Knee, if anyone's wondering. Right. Then he also got sent down to uh, fight in the Spanish-American War down in Cuba. Yeah. It's really crazy when you read the, those stories. You know, they, they sent these guys down there in wool suits and they shipped them over to Cuba and they get out. And it's like, a, you know, it's this tropical island and they had little supplies and it was just, it was really brutal fighting. Uh, but th- he won. And um, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, was out there fighting too and with his Rough Riders. Yeah, the Battle of San he, Juan Hill. And that's really where uh, Roosevelt became. Um, aware of Pershing. In fact, uh, later Roosevelt promoted Pershing, uh, skipping over 800 other soldiers and made him um, a brigadier general. So much like Eisenhower, his leadership skills and abilities that were really God-given were recognized by a lot of people around him. Yeah, exactly. And then because we had won the Spanish American War, from that would get the territories that had been occupied by Spain. And one of those places was the Philippines. So for much of the early 1900s, um, Pershing was over in the Philippines. And he actually had a big uh, rebellion battle there that he fought with uh, the warring Moro tribes and uh, became the military governor there for a while. And then he comes back to the United States and we're having all this stuff going on down on the border with Mexico and Pancho Villa. Oh, yeah. So he's down there fighting, and then one of the worst things of his life happens. Yeah, Jay, uh, you know, he was he got married uh, to a, a good-looking girl, Helen uh, Warren, in 1905. So he would have been married when he was about 45 years old. And uh, together they had uh, three daughters and a boy. Yeah, there was a tragedy, um, Jay, that was pretty significant in his life involving uh, his daughters and his wife. Well, after a year at Fort Bliss, where he was stationed, Pershing decided to take his family there. And the morning of uh, August 27th of 1915, so that would have been 10 years after he was married, uh, he received a telegram informing him of a huge fire in the Presidio where his family was in San Francisco. They, They identified kind of where the fire from, but long story short is that his wife, Helen, and three young daughters were, were killed in this fire. His son survived, but Jay, what a blow. I mean, what a, what a blow uh, to have your three daughters and your wife uh, die in a fire. Well, his, his spirit to me reading about his life was indomitable. He pressed forward. And so the next part in his life, you know, a year later, he has this expedition, you know, to Mexico and, uh, you know, organizing efforts in, in th- literally thousands of men and commanding them uh, in route of Pancho Villa's revolutionaries in Mexico, like you just said, you mentioned Pancho Villa. So pretty, pretty significant event in, um, in Pershing's life. And I think all those things led up to giving him the skills that he needed, you know, to bring the troops over to Europe and fight. I mean, he was very aware of how important it was to have a good supply line you know, he had learned different techniques of fighting and had really shown his men how he would lead. And in fact, in Cuba, they said he was as cool as a, a bowl of ice. You know, he he, he just did not um, 
falter. He was out there leading them. And, um, you know, people that are interested in that should really go ahead and read about um, some of these stories because he was an amazing man. He actually was promoted to, after World War I, to general of the armies. He would become the only active duty six-star general in U.S. history. And then George Washington was also made a six-star general, but that wasn't until the Bicentennial right, in 1976. Right, yeah. uh, the other thing I think is really amazing is a lot of our groups go out to Washington, D.C., and they go up to Arlington Cemetery, which, by the way, is where Pershing right. is buried, but they go to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Pershing was actually involved in that whole funeral ceremony where they brought over, uh, because the death toll is so high in World War I, the countries of Britain and uh, France each selected an unidentified soldier from the battlefields to be like their unknown soldier. Right. And the British buried theirs in Westminster Abbey. The French buried their unknown soldier under the Arc de Triomphe. And the United States uh, felt like we should do this too. So we selected four bodies from the fields of Europe that nobody could identify. And they selected one of them to be the unknown soldier, brought the body over uh, to the capital where it had a lying in state ceremony. And then Pershing actually went along with the body up to Arlington Cemetery and they buried the first unknown soldier. Yeah, Jay, and uh, I just think, you know, getting back to World War One, because his his the military was obviously the, the most significant part of his life. But, you know, the American successes in in Europe were largely credited to Pershing. This is the statue that's, you know, kind of smack dab in, in the middle of the World War One memorial. You know, the rest of Pershing's life is, is super interesting. Again, if anybody wants to do some uh, some really good reading, uh, you know, just reading about Pershing's life is a, is a great place to uh, is a great place to be. Um, well, and Aaron, just to to wrap up this segment, just to show how important he was um, when World War II broke out. All these generals like Patton and Eisenhower and Marshall and Bradley. They all went to Pershing for direction and advice, even though he was like in his 80s. So they all respected him so much that he advised them through World War II. And so when you talk about him having that big statue there, people really loved him after the war. Yeah, and he even wrote um, some memoirs that were awarded, um, I think it was 1932, the Pulitzer Prize for History. So, you know, he must have been a pretty good writer, too. So, Aaron, why don't we move into Behind the Memorial, and we'll talk for a few minutes about the actual memorial that they've created at this former Pershing Park. At the very entrance, they, like you said, Aaron, they left the big statue of Pershing, and that's they call that the great man. Um, but then they have this round uh, kind of little tower thing that you kind of enter into. It's called the Belvedere. Right. And um, I think you and I were talking about that earlier, that the Belvedere is a word that means like a, a structure designed to command a view. It could be like a, 
you know, like a summer house or a cupola, but this is kind of like a rounded wall area that people walk into. Right. And they look out over this big pool of water. And uh, at the end of it, there's um, a really large sculpture group that they're, they're actually still working on. I think it's supposed to be completed in like 2024 is what I've heard. Right. That's what the commission has stated is uh, year 2024. So what they have in place is just kind of artwork. It's like a tapestry that illustrates this, uh, this statue group. And just really quick, Jade, to give uh, credit where credit is due to the architect of the memorial. His name is Joe Weishar. And uh, from what I've read about him, he's, a, he's kind of a newcomer to the whole architectural realm. Um, but he was commissioned. Um, he actually took on the job. And so the, a lot of the design um, is his. And this, this, this group that we're talking about is called a soldier's journey, the sculpture. Right. And it's 38 separate figures spread out over about 58 feet of wall uh, towards the, uh, the Western end of the Memorial. And it, what it portrays is, I think it's kind of cool uh, because it's the experience of, one American soldier. Now, this American soldier is represented by different ethnic groups, people groups. So, uh, you know, if you go left to right, it, looking at this this grouping, uh, the soldier takes leave from his wife and daughter, is leaving home, kind of charges mm-hmm. into combat, sees the men around him killed, wounded, uh, and then as you move right, um, it kind of recovers from the shock uh, to come home to his family. And all of these uh, figures uh, are, I guess, going to be directly mounted to that wall. But the, but this parade, so to speak, as they've called it, as a whole, includes African-Americans and other ethnic groups uh, who essentially answered their country's call to go to war. So that, that one soldier, this progression is not just one, like one specific guy. It's representative of uh, every soldier that went over to uh, the European theater. Right. And there's like a low uh, pool of water with like kind of a waterfall right below it. And then if you go around to the back of that, they call that the peace fountain where you can sit and contemplate. And uh, they have a, a quotation back there and the water kind of continues around to the back there. What's kind of neat too about this uh, memorial um, is they've, included these little tiny bronze uh, poppies at the memorial site. Um, now, poppies kind of became symbolic of World War I. Um, and I don't know, do you remember this growing up, Aaron, that they would, on Veterans Day, some places will sell like these little uh, poppies? Well, and I remember veterans even handing them out at different places. Yeah. They would just, they would give people those poppies. And I know there's uh, references about the fields of poppies over in Europe. When you go into Westminster Abbey, all around their memorial to their unknown soldier, they have a kind of a wreath of poppies. But anyway, here at this memorial, they made these little bronze poppies. And there's like, um, I think there's like nine of them. And you can like actually scan your phone at these little poppies and they'll like tell you uh, things about the memorial as you walk through Well, and there's uh, four different inscriptions in the memorial that are pretty significant. So why don't we take a, 
a moment to kind of go behind the quote or some of the inscriptions that mm-hmm. that are actually on in the memorial. Jay, what would be uh, one of the ones that caught your eye? I think the one I would pick out would be the one that's at the Peace Fountain. And uh, that's on the backside of where all that statue grouping is. It was actually written by a man named Archibald McLeish. And he was a librarian of the Library of Congress. He served as an ambulance driver and an artillery officer. And he wrote, it's called The Young Dead Soldiers Do Not Speak. He wrote that in 1940. But this is a quote that they have on the wall from him. It says, we leave you our deaths, give them their meaning, give them an end to the war and a true peace. Give them a victory that ends war and a peace afterwards. Give them their meaning. We were young, they say. We have died. Remember us. Yeah, Jay, that's really good. Uh, The other quotes are great as well, but uh, another one that I really have appreciated in just being there and seeing it myself is one called The Toll of War. And it's a quote by an author uh, named Willa Cather. And Jay, I had read uh, a couple of Willa Cather's books when I was in high school. And I think it was for like early American literature. But I remember reading Death Comes for the Archbishop. And she has actually written over 480 books. Wow. A pretty incredible author. But she gives this this quote here, and it's very simple, but it's called The Toll of War. And she says, they were mortal, uh, but they were unconquerable. And when I think about the the soldiers of any war, um, you know, and I guess Willa was even thinking um, this was kind of a response to the death of her cousin mm-hmm. um, that was killed in one of the battles over there. So it was personal for her, but the, the you know, the spirit uh, of, of the soldiers, um, mere mortals going into battle, um, but to do what they did, you know, I think of the American Expeditionary Forces and even the first expert first American expeditionary force in the attitude, the mental uh, attitude that they had, uh, they were unconquerable and many of them died, but they knew what their jobs were and they knew that they had purpose. So they were mortal, but they were unconquerable. Well, Aaron, I really hope that our listeners have a chance to get out and see this new memorial. I know that our groups that went there this fall and this spring uh, really enjoyed it. In fact, um, when did you say that it had officially opened? It was in in April of uh, this this year. April of this year, right? So it's fairly new. I really hope that people are able to get out and see it someday. I think they did a really great job of taking an existing site and repurposing it, but yet keeping you know the element of Pershing statue and making that whole square really attractive. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a really beautiful memorial. Yeah. And, you know, just again, Jay makes me think of, you know, why it kind of makes me proud because America has invested so much time um, and money into helping people remember our heritage and our past. Uh, and it, it's the good, the bad and the ugly. But this this was a significant time in history. And I think it's very worthy of a memorial to remember. And also to remember one of the most significant figures uh, in American history, which is John J. Pershing. I think a guy that goes kind of an unsung figure in our history. 
All right, Jay, I think we need a call to action for this episode uh, in reference to World War One and John J. Pershing. So I've picked uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. And uh, you guys, this is a great reference just in terms of uh, God's word and, and the Lord imploring us and asking us to place our faith in him, that we have purpose, that God prepares us for the things that he wants to do through us. And we need to be uh, faithful and obedient in, in heeding the call when we discern that. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 1, 21 through 24 says this, Through Christ you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all of your heart. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So God gives us the ability to do great things. When we place our faith in Christ and when we live lives that are striving for obedience, it's an amazing thing that happens in our hearts and our minds that we move forward and we do things that oftentimes we don't think that we can do. But through Christ, we can trust in God. And just a great call to action today, uh, everybody, that you have been born for a wonderful purpose. Number one is to come to Christ, but number two is to, to allow him to do great things through you. And we see people in history that have done great things uh, for the glory of God and uh, kind of makes us want to be part of that. And we live in some precarious times, but um, God wants to do some amazing things through us. So don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified when the next episode drops and share this podcast with your friends. Also, if you have questions for us, you can email us at behind the tour at acts acts dash tours.com behind the tour at acts dash tours.com well thanks for joining us today everyone we hope that you learned something uh we're so glad that you've chosen to join us and spend a little bit of time uh, learning about our history and what god has done and remember that your story is a part of his story and that God puts you here and now in this day and age for such a time as this. See you next time.